I just lost the thing I wanted to do for the next 25 years. It was super threatening at a very fundamental level. The main thing that I learned from that is to separate form from what's my life's work. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of Famous Failures, where it's my job to interview the world's most interesting people about their failures and what they learned from them. Today's guest is Erica Ariel Fox. Erica is an advisor to CEOs and other senior executives on their leadership challenges. She is the New York Times bestselling author of Winning From Within, a breakthrough method for leading, living, and lasting change. She's taught at Harvard Law School for most of the last 20 years, and her thought leadership is shared with her clients through Mobius Executive Leadership. Her writing has appeared in the Harvard Business Review and McKinsey Quarterly, among many other publications. She is also a LinkedIn influencer and a regular contributor to Forbes in the leadership section. This was uh, one of the most fun and honest conversations that I've had on the the, the podcast. Uh, we discuss a number of topics. I'm just going to summarize some of the highlights here. Erica and I talk about why the most important negotiations you can have in your life are the ones in your own mind. The negotiation challenge that a foreign Supreme Court justice presented to Erica and how she dealt with that challenge. And the challenge is not what you think it might be. Why a massively successful initiative that Erica led at Harvard Law School was eventually shut down. How you can go about challenging conventional wisdom in traditional places like Harvard Law School. We talk about how the stories we tell ourselves get in the way of our full potential. The strategies that you can use to have conversations about other people's failures. This was a a new one for me. We tend to focus on the discomfort that our own personal failures generates, but we rarely talk about the discomfort that talking about other people's failures uh, brings about as well. And Erica has some great strategies that you can use to have conversations about other people's failures as well that she shares with us during the episode. And finally, why you must stand in the truth of your failure to learn and Before I turn things over to Erica, if you'd like to keep in touch with me, your host, you can sign up for the Weekly Contrarian, which is a weekly newsletter that lands in your inbox every Thursday. It will share with you a blog post that I wrote that week, as well as recommendations for books, articles, tools, really anything that challenges conventional wisdom and helps uh, change the way that you look at the world. You can sign up for that in one of two ways. You can go to my website, which is ozanvarol.com. That's O-Z-A-N-V as in Victor, A-R-O-L.com forward slash newsletter and join nearly 10,000 people who receive that newsletter every week. Or you can also text my first name, Ozan, O-Z-A-N to 345-345. And if you sign up, you'll get my free ebook, The Contrarian Handbook, Eight Principles for Innovating Your Thinking for Free. Without further ado, Please enjoy my conversation with Erica Ariel Fox. Erica, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm super looking forward to this. I've been really looking forward to this conversation. And uh, just a shout out to our mutual friend, Dina, for uh, Dina Kaplan, for introducing <laughs> us. Hey, Dina. Yes. <laughs> As I mentioned in your introduction, you advise CEOs and other senior executives on their leadership challenges. How did you get interested in leadership development? Well, it's interesting. I started out teaching negotiation at the Harvard Negotiation Project and also at Harvard Law School, where our focus was first on helping people negotiate with each other and then having parties in really 
difficult conversations or difficult conflicts, even armed conflicts, find ways to mediate their disputes. But I became really interested in what I started to call negotiating with yourself, which means there are different parts of you that are in conflict, not just you with other people, and teaching people how to identify parts of themselves and negotiate with parts of themselves. And as I started teaching that, it became very clear to me that this is an enormous leadership skill and that leaders specifically and people of influence whose actions impact a lot of people really become astronomically more effective if they understand how to lead themselves in this way. And I kind of pivoted from negotiating with yourself to leading yourself. I see. So let's begin then with the negotiating with yourself part. So what does that mean exactly? And and you bring this out in your book as well, Winning from Within, and looking at a quote in front of me, you say, what makes a difference in successful negotiation and leadership lives inside of us. The key to a good outcome, whether around the conference table or the dining room table, is to undertake a negotiation within ourselves. So how do we how do we negotiate with ourselves? Well, I'll give you an example. And this relates also to the pivot we were just talking about. When I was relatively early in my career, we had executive education summer seminars and people would come from all over the world and professional people, not just lawyers, but we met at the law school. They would come for a week of advanced training on negotiation skills. So in the middle of the week, one of the sessions had one of us who was a fellow who was teaching the course and three delegates, and we were supposed to coach them on their negotiation challenge. So I had in my group of three, a justice from the Supreme Court of another country, a person who'd been serving on the bench for a very long time, and I had just graduated law school. So I couldn't really imagine what I would have to offer to this person. But the next day we came in and each person had to offer their challenge. And this is a completely true story. This gentleman, very elegant, very sophisticated person said, I want my wife to stop picking out my ties. That is a true story. And I was what? like, what? I was worried he negotiated with parliament or the media. And I uh, said, excuse me? And he says, you know, for 35 years, every day I come out of the washroom and she does it again. She's laid my tie <laughs> on the floor, on the, on the bed. And, you know, I hate that. Why does she do that? And this really was the conflict that was driving him nuts. It was keeping him up at night. He didn't know how to solve it. So I paused in a moment thinking, you know, we usually have people practice skills, you know, assertiveness, or maybe he could say, could you please not do that? But it just was preposterous. I mean, obviously, he didn't need to practice how to say something. I mean, in my fantasy, I imagine this guy sentencing people to death, you know. (laughs) So what I realized in that moment was it really was not a negotiation between him and his wife. It's not for him to say, could you pick out my tie Wednesday, but not Thursday. There's something going on inside of him. There's some part of him that really wants her to stop. And there's a different part of him that really doesn't want to bring this up, doesn't want to hurt her, doesn't want to change his identity as a loving husband or feels, you know, I waited this long, I can't bring it up now. And yet the other part of him is saying, this is driving me nuts. So that day in that session, instead of having a little role play of the judge and his wife, we had a role play of the part of him that wanted her to stop doing that and the part of him that didn't want to talk about it. And they had to come to a kind of agreement. And this was the beginning of my understanding of 
personal identity, leadership identity, and how the story we tell ourselves about who we are makes it extremely difficult at times to fulfill our dreams, to capture opportunities, to get out of dilemmas, and him expanding his sense of himself Owning these things, I am a loving husband and a caring person, and it's okay for me to ask for what I want. Those are different parts of me. Enabled him to then practice, and it was really easy for him to say things like, you know, of course, I don't want to hurt you, and I appreciate you, and I would really prefer to do this for myself. Like, saying it isn't the hard part. Getting the alignment inside of yourself, which you get by, quote, negotiating with parts of yourself, getting that alignment is the key. When you have that, I see this in clients all the time, you don't have to like think about what to say or have someone teach you what to say because that just sort of organically arises when you have internal alignment with yourself. So I want to circle back to the story we tell ourselves because I, I really do think this is a very important component of it. I want to ask you about the mechanics of how this internal negotiation might work. Uh, and I know you get into this in some detail in your book, but for those of us in the audience who, who haven't read the book, the term talking to yourself usually has a pejorative meaning. <laughs> like yeah. this person is, you know, talking to themselves. And so how do you <laughs> how do you negotiate, you know, have this inner monologue with the identities that live within you without sounding like a crazy person? Well, this is an important question. And I will say there is a psychological distinction between what people might classically think of as multiple personalities, which is more recently called dissociative identity disorder. And this, what we're talking about. So on the mental health concern area would be different parts of your identity that when you switch between them, you don't remember what the other one experienced. Right. So, you know, you have some kind of experience with someone in your family where you have a fight and then you switch to a different, what, let's call it personality or identity. You don't remember having had that fight and you don't understand why the person's mad at you. So people that we're talking about ourselves, you know, who are listening here, the executives that I work with, most professionals, we have many different sides of ourselves and we remember them when we switch between them. So that's an extremely healthy thing to do. It's a skillful thing to do. We're doing it a lot of the time, even if we don't notice it, but Aristotle and Plato and Freud and Walt Whitman and Joseph Campbell, I mean, over many, many, many centuries and now neuroscience shows us we have different parts of ourselves and that we can teach ourselves to communicate internally. Whenever I think about, you know, identities and the inner voices within us and, and having them talk to each other, the idea of the inner critic always comes yeah. up. So Dan yeah. Harris, who's a, I think he was an ABC News correspondent. He also wrote a book called 10% Happier. He calls us the the asshole who lives in my head. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> so one of the identities is the that of the the inner critic who yeah. you know who tells us, oh, you should have seen that coming, or who who says when we do something wrong, like what's wrong with you? And that that comes up a lot, I think, in people's daily lives. And so so I, I wonder what you think about that and how to how to deal with that particular identity that tends to come up at the most inopportune moments in our lives. The answer to that, I would say, is that that's an extremely recognizable common identity. There are others like inner child or, you know, my over responsible self or my parent versus my, you know, my home life self and my professional self. What I tried to do in Winning From Within is sort of box together the most common universal, you know, across centuries, across geographies, fundamental aspects of who we are 
and to name those seven. And those are big buckets. And every one of the, I think, most active sub elements like inner critic, for example, falls somewhere into these seven. And I did that because, you know, there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of different identities people experience. But if you're a busy executive trying to think about your hundreds of identities is really tough, even if you're aware of the inner critic as a primary one. So the inner critic, for example, lives in the archetype of the judge. And I can tell you more about that. But the archetype of the judge lives within the part of you that I call the thinker. So there are four main archetypes, and then you can drill down to those specific ones. It's a lot easier than trying to engage every single sub-aspect. And so when the, the, the judge or the thinker starts speaking and, and berating you for what you should have done, what you could have said, what went wrong in that meeting, you know, the one question that lawyers always have this, they leave the oral argument and, and like they, they come up with the best answer <laughs> to the question that the judge asked, but it's, it's too late. A little too late. Exactly. And so, the, so then they start berating themselves about, well, why didn't I think of that? What do you do? Well, okay. So two things. One is each of the big four, which I talk about as the thinker being one of them, the warrior, the lover, and the dreamer being the other three, very fundamental human archetypes. Each of these things has a centered expression and a somewhat distorted or toxic expression. So if we take the judge and the inner critic, we could say, when you're in your thinker in a centered way, you have good judgment. I mean, that's important. You can evaluate decisions. You can manage risk. That's good. But when the judge in you becomes toxic, it can either turn on you, which is what you're talking about, you know, the asshole in my mind or, you know, (laughs) um, the inner critic. And frankly, it can also turn on other people. You know, you decide everyone around you is stupid and not as smart as you are. And you have all sorts of judgments about other people. That's an inner critic turned outward. That's also not very centered. So one of the things that you can do, and there are really two primary ones, one of them is you can learn how to bring your own thinker, lover, dreamer, warrior back into center. You can learn what your patterns are of how these become toxic and learn to bring them back to center. But also within winning from within, it's a very fundamental concept that you have to anchor yourself in your own center of well-being. And each of these parts You know, these have elements, but your centeredness yourself uh, doesn't become toxic. It doesn't turn on you. It doesn't turn on other people. So you can learn over time to anchor yourself there. And then when you choose to use any of these other four main archetypes, you will, you know, you'd be more likely to be kind to yourself and to say, yes, you know, I could have said that. And in a bunch of other cases, I said something really brilliant and I can't win every time. Like you can understand what happened without berating yourself. Just speaking from personal experience, I think berating makes things worse, yeah, <laughs> far yeah, worse. And then, you know, and berating the inner critic too makes things worse. So if you sort of try to disband or expel the inner critic or even call it an asshole, I think it just c- comes back roaring stronger than ever. <laughs> One of the things that you talk about so brilliantly is, you know, everybody fails. Everybody right. has moments when they wish they would have done something differently or what you said, you do something and then you regret it later. If you are really carrying a a harsh inner critic, very difficult to learn when things go wrong because you're just too busy beating yourself up to even notice that you could step back and learn something from it. So from a, you know, how can failure generate wisdom and growth? The inner critic, you know, is a disaster. It's like your biggest adversary in doing that. Right. Very little learning going on when you're busy berating yourself. So you mentioned this pivot from working on negotiation to working on 
leadership. Uh, please tell us a little bit more about that. What decided? How did you go about deciding to make that pivot? Uh, it started for me in a pretty personal way. Well, personal and public way, because I'd been teaching at the Negotiation Project. And in 2000 and 2001, well, September 11th happened and the death of both of my parents happened both within the same year. And that gave me a chance pretty early in professional life to let's sort of step back and, you know, try to really discern what was mine to do? Like maybe you'd have a midlife crisis 20 years later from that, but I was there sort of thrust into this situation very early. And I really came to feel called. I, f- I came to feel that this was a contribution that I was meant to make, which is standing on this bridge between leaders, not just lawyers, um, which was the negotiation context, not just resolving conflict, which was the negotiation context, but leaders who have the potential you know, to influence a lot of people, to shape the future, that I could create a bridge for those people between the world of action that they live in and a world I had been steeped in for most of my life, which was psychology, spirituality, timeless wisdom practices, those kind of things that are not necessarily usually accessible to successful business people. And I wanted to stand on that bridge. So I became interested in leaders because they have a lot of influence. And the leadership frame gave a lot more people interest in what I was doing than the negotiation frame, honestly. So it was a path to have more impact. And that's when you decided to start uh, Mobius? You know, there were a lot of things starting at the same time. It's interesting. Mm -hmm. If you look at different organizations, this idea of like leading from the inside out was popping up in a bunch of places. Michael Rennie at McKinsey was starting this similar inquiry at that time. My partners and I started Mobius. I started the Harvard Negotiation Insight Initiative. I think John Kabat-Zinn had already been doing super cool stuff in the basement of UMass. But there was a lot of, you know, a bunch of people who were all trying to figure this out as the next big thing. So it was me, it was Mobius, it was also lots of other people trying to figure this out. And there's obviously a collective sense that the inner life matters. I mean, certainly to the link of mental health and physical health and even, you know, mindfulness and meditation practice that John Kabat-Zinn mainstreamed for healthcare. That's really what I'm trying to do for business people. You mentioned the um, the Harvard Negotiation Insights Initiative, which was a, a major project that you led in and grew over five years. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, what I was saying is I felt really called to create this bridge. And it was not even, you know, people talk a lot about what, figuring out your purpose. And this for me was beyond personal purpose. It felt more like this is what I'm here for. This is what I should do. And because I was a lecturer at the law school and I was connected with the negotiation project, I was able to launch a pretty successful internationally recognized center. It was a leadership center and we did research and we had like a living laboratory where people were coming, doing experiments. And it's the most creative thing I've ever done. It was really looking at across so many different disciplines, you know, poetry and theology and social science and physical science, all this brilliance coming in from all over the place with doing yoga and contemplative practice. And it was beautiful. We had one of our summer sessions, we had people from, I think, 200 different countries. It was really, really an amazing experience. However, it was in some way before its time. I mean, this was really, you know, in the early, early 2000s. And I didn't understand at all at the time that 
doing something amazing and ignoring the politics of working in a traditional institution is not a sustainable plan. You know, I didn't tell the story. I didn't enroll people, you know, at, at the business school or, you know, various important decision makers. I didn't share what I was doing because I thought it was so cool. And why did I have to go tell other people about it? And that created a kind of urban legend. <laughs> what was going on over there? Like, you know, like we had people, you know, sitting on meditation cushions and somewhere was the rumor like, oh, everyone is laying on the floor and primal screaming. <laughs> like, OK, we did have people sitting on the floor on extremely expensive meditation cushions. But, you know, we weren't doing primal screaming um, <laughs> at some point, like the rumors of it just completely overtook the reality of it. and. That was an incredible learning opportunity for me because I understand very well now what I'm doing with executives is unusual. I mean, it's certainly outside of, let's say, a traditional leadership course you know, that people would go to. It's very experiential. And what I call journey work, the individual journey work that I do with people is, you know, is let's call it bespoke. But I learned a lot then about how to enroll stakeholders, how to tell people enough about what's happening so that I can do things that are experimental, but without creating this backlash, if I can say that, from an institution. Sure. And I can speak firsthand about how sticky the status quo tends to be in, in law schools. And I had this conception of law schools before I started teaching as a law professor of, you know, places of creativity and enlightenment. And that's true to some extent, but the the conventions are so strong and they can be so hard to change. And so, so yeah, so I'm not, I'm not, I'm not surprised that you, uh, you ran into some, some issues there. So and I'll tell you something. I have a non-life-threatening genetic disease and I just have to have medicine for it every two weeks. And I have a doctor and her first name is Carla. And every time I go see her, I say, hi, Dr. Hollick. And she says, oh, just call me Carla. I can't do it. I cannot address my doctor by her first name. Every time I see her, she says, oh, call me Carla. And I can't do it. I So some of these things, they're really ingrained in us. It's hard, even something so simple as an intimate one-on-one as that one, I can't break out of the social norm of, you know, addressing her more formally. Looking back on this experience, what would you have done differently? So starting this unconventional training program at a very conventional place if you wanted to keep the unconventional part of it, which is, I think, probably one of the reasons why it was so successful, but also have it be accepted by the by the institution, what might you do differently? There are two aspects, I think, of that. One is what I personally would have done differently in my own life, and then what I would have done institutionally differently. I think probably if I look at some of my own failure, it would be just complete identification with this program, like this program is my life. This is what I was born to do and nothing else matters. You know, dating doesn't matter. Having a social life, sleeping, vacation, you know, nothing matters except <laughs> this one thing because I was born to do it. Um, that was very unhealthy. And I did that for five years and it was enlivening because I felt really passionate, but I didn't have really any other sense of identity or purpose or engagement. And the one time I finally took a vacation after literally five years because I thought, hey, this thing's pretty stable. It's not an experiment. You know, it's well respected. During this several day vacation, the committee voted to close down the program. So when I came back, it, you know, I was kind of told it was over. 
And I just really collapsed. I mean, from a personal identity perspective, as I say, I was still quite young. And my experience inside of myself was like, hey, this is what I was born to do. This is the purpose of my life. And like, now what? Like, I just lost the thing I wanted to do for the next 25 years. And it was super threatening at a very fundamental level. And I think the one, the main thing that I learned from that is to separate form from what's my life's work. And I can do my life's work in a lot of places. It doesn't have to be at that center, at that place. And that was a huge learning for me from the failure. And the other one is the one I said, which is just really, I would have engaged stakeholders so much earlier and, you know, invite them to come see what was happening. And I didn't have the intention of creating secrecy, but I had the impact of people thinking like, oh, it's all secretive, what's happening there? And it didn't need to be that way at all. And so I do do that differently now. So they could have come and sat on some of these very comfortable meditation exactly. chairs. <laughs> exactly. We were barefoot. I have to own that. It was July and we were barefoot at Harvard Law School. But you know, that was partially, I just felt at home there. I went to Harvard Law School. I had taught at Harvard Law School. It's just like walking down the hall to me was very natural. And I didn't take the perspective, which is quite naive, that you know, they, these people are saying, look, we have judges walking down the hall barefoot. It is Harvard Law School. And <laughs> I, you know, again, I was just more like, yeah, I was a kid. I went to school here. I, you know, used to walking around late at night doing homework, whatever. So there just really was a huge naivete about doing something in an institution. And it was definitely the most significant failure of my career, but not just my career to, you know, my vocational experience was that falling apart. And then you mentioned during our email exchange before the call that a lot of the, the failures you had in your life were about your personal identity, who you thought you should be versus who you actually are. And it harkens back nicely to something you said at the very beginning of our conversation about this story that we tell ourselves about, you know, what should be happening in, more, in my life, what I am as a person and what that means and the story can get in the way, of course. And so so I wonder if you can give an example, another example from your life, where the story that you were telling yourself, this idea of who you thought you should be versus who you are, got in the way and how you dealt with it. And perhaps you can share a story, if you can, speaking in generalities, from the clients you've worked with in the past as well, how the story they tell themselves as to what they should be doing as a, as a CEO or a senior executive I would bet everybody listening here has examples of identities or achievements that they could sort of tick off that would let them know that they're on track um, and on their path. And actually, when this program fell apart, the one we were talking about, and I realized, you know, I have to have things in my life that feel purposeful and fulfilling. As a driven, achievement-oriented person, I made myself a list. And my list, I called my four Bs. And my four Bs were book, body, boyfriend, baby. And I was very clear <laughs> that these were the things that I needed to have. And that's who I am. I'm a successful, well-rounded leader, woman, super chick thing. And I wanted to have all those things. And I really approached this in an insane way that was just like willing myself to have all these various things happen. And I, again, I'm sure a lot of people have examples like this, but the way that I approached these things was absolutely and completely from an approach of force. <laughs> like I will 
make these things happen. And when I look back now on what I was doing, like I would go on a first date with someone and I would just start with, so do you want to have children? Like how many children do you want to have? <laughs> a friend of mine at the time said, you know, these men might like to think you're interested in them as opposed to just really, you know, broadcasting, you really are looking for a sperm bank. So that, <laughs> that you know, didn't go that well. Um, and the same is with the book. I just, you might have this, I don't know, but I know you're more focused on your book. So probably you are more successful at this one. But early on, I was going around saying to people, I'm working on a book or I'm writing a book. But in reality, I was advising clients almost all the time. And I would try to carve out a little time, you know, to work on the book. And this might be helpful to you. At some point, I changed my mindset to the book is my most important client. The book is my most important client and everything has to come after that. So I'm saying this in a part because what I learned is from like, why is this not happening? Or like, why me? Why can't I achieve this to a really more challenging question, which is what am I doing to prevent this from happening? And if I want to achieve something, like let's say the book, instead of being frustrated, this not happening, I have to ask myself, you know, what's my mindset or what are my behaviors that I am literally creating the failure I'm experiencing? Oh, I love that. So shifting from focusing on or blaming external circumstances versus an internal choice, like instead of saying, I don't have time to write the book, saying I'm choosing not to make not to make time to write the book. I don't know if I even remember your original question, but I want to just, if I can add one more sure. aspect of this, you know, because I'm talking about ways to get over obstacles and make things happen. Like I did actually write a book and that book went on to be a New York Times bestseller. And the dreams that I had for that book, you know, largely came true, but I didn't have a baby, something that I really deeply wanted and, you know, wanted to have for a very long time. And that, as it lives in me, is a kind of failure in the sense of, you know, assuming my whole life that I would be a mother and just watching that not happen and experiencing how uncomfortable people are with someone else's failure around this topic. So people would say to me all the time, but your book is your baby. I'd say, well, actually a book is a book. Right. <laughs> it's, like not, it's not a baby. Not, it's actually not like a creating a human being or like, oh, but you know, you've helped thousands and thousands of people and you're like a mother to those people. I'm like, yeah, well, those are clients, actually. It's not like building a family. And I found that I was actually more able to accept some of these things that I wanted happen in my life and some of them didn't. And people's discomfort with what you know, I was sharing as something I wish would have happened, their discomfort with me failing made it harder for me to accept, you know, this didn't happen. And I can say, you know, I didn't start thinking about this till I was relatively older because I was focused on, you know, this initiative that I ran for five years. I did make certain choices. And I think it's just interesting to think about how to protect yourself from how other people wish you know, you didn't fail or they want to make it something else. Like you wrote a book. It's like your baby and, and saying like, I accept this for myself. Even now, and I'm much older, Rose, and I'll tell you, even now people will say to me, you know, you can adopt. And I say to them, you know what? It's a huge disappointment in my life. It's a, it's a failure in a certain sense, but that's okay. You know, you don't have to fix it. It's just what happened. I accept that. It's part of what happened in my life. And I really learned that failure or disappointment or regret that you have for yourself, you have to decide how to be in relationship with that failure and not let other people's 
discomfort with it confuse you or make you feel worse. That's such an important point. Actually, I don't think this has ever come up in one of the many, many, many conversations I've had on failure to date, because we always talk about the discomfort that failure causes in us. Failure sucks from a personal perspective. We feel horrible about ourselves, but we haven't, I don't think I've ever addressed with a guest on the discomfort that our failure causes in other people. And so, you know, looking back on, on, on this experience of people saying, well, your book is your baby, which it clearly is not, you know, <laughs> Thank you for saying that. <laughs> you know it people, really isn't, it really isn't. Like you do develop an emotional attachment to the ideas in the book, which can get in the way, but it's nowhere near the same emotional attachment you have to a it child. It's just because when people are working on a book, right, they've been working on it for, for a year and people, they're almost done. People are like, oh, it's like, it's like giving birth. It's like having a baby. Like <laughs> you worked on it for a year or something. Like you grew it from nothing into something. But yeah, you know, the book is out. It's out in 14 languages. It's been read by a lot of people and I still don't feel like a mom of that book. So having lived through this, how do you approach, I don't know if you've tweaked your approach at all, or, or there are two ways of asking this question. I'll, I'll ask it both ways and then I'll let you decide which way you want to answer it. One way would be to say, what do you wish your friends had been saying? So instead of saying, well, your book is your baby, how do you think they could have approached it differently? And, or this is the second part, how do you approach conversations when you're working and this could be a friend or a client that you're working with who has failed in whatever it is that they might be doing? How do you deal with that? I think because the, the, the discomfort is it's so natural for it to arise when you're listening to somebody else's failure. How do you deal with that? And, and, and how do you uh, lead the conversation to a productive place uh, to help the other person as opposed to say things like your book is your baby, which is clearly not true. <laughs> <laughs> I want to tell you, I really appreciate that you feel me on this. I really do. You know, one of the things that I say to clients a lot is stand in the truth. And that includes stand in the truth of your failure. You don't have to make it something better. You don't have to find a way to fix it. You know, you have to stand in the truth of what is. And that's how I feel about this. It's how I feel with a lot of clients. And a lot of it does come back to this isn't how it was supposed to be. You know, this isn't the story that I've had about myself since I was young in my career or even, you know, younger. And you have to accept that what is in reality is what happened. And your story about yourself, what I sometimes call your personal myth or with professionals, your leadership myth has to expand in some way to like integrate the story of your life that actually happened. You know, like this is actually what happened. And I tell you to go back to my list with the boyfriend. I was so focused on finding this boyfriend who, you know, was some Jewish guy that lived between Boston and D.C. I really just hugely limited my dating pool. And eventually I started dating a guy who lives in Europe, who's not Jewish, who I ended up marrying. But I didn't date him for a long time because I felt like, but you're not, that's not the guy in my picture. <laughs> you're like this tall, you know, Dutch person. That's not my list. And at some point, someone said, you are waiting for a hypothetical person who doesn't actually exist. And then there's an actual person in your life that cares about you and, you know, go for the real thing. So I did have to kind of accept that 
the picture I had, the identity I had, what I wished had happened didn't happen in order to create a possibility. And I think that's really hard for people. Like the irony is if you stand in the truth of your failure, you stop forcing something to happen that just isn't happening. You know, there's a saying, you can't push the river. And it's really true. You, you have to operate by flow, not force. So, I mean, there's a difference between working hard at something, you know, which takes grit and patience versus forcing something that simply isn't going to happen. And it's important to me. It's important to clients. You can't move forward with a new possibility while you're fighting against or resisting the thing you're trying is failing. I love this poem by Donna Markova. I'm going to read the part out loud just because I think it really goes well with what you just said. And and she says, I choose to risk my significance to live so that which came to me as seed goes to the next as blossom. And and unless you're, as you said, standing in the truth of your failure, unless you're choosing to risk your own significance, chances are you're just going to remain stagnant. (laughs) You're not going to learn from any failures and you're not going to be able to move on to the next big thing. And you're going to miss the thing that's standing in front of you, right? The the tall guy from Europe. (laughs) Exactly. And back to your question, you know, what I wish people would say to me even now is, yeah, that sounds really sad for you. Sounds like that was something you really wanted that didn't happen. Instead of continuing to try to fix it, As I said, you know, people fix it by telling me something else as a baby. People fix it now by saying, you know, hey, you know, donor eggs. I'm like, (laughs) you know what? I'm a smart person. And from a problem solving perspective, I do know what my options are. And if I wanted to solve it at that level, I would have. And I would say to people, I mean, not necessarily in this phrase, but just respect me enough to allow me to stand in the truth of my failure. You don't have to make this better. I would really appreciate you saying, it sounds like this was really important to you and it's still sad, you know, that it didn't happen. And I would say, yeah, it is. You know, I mean, done and move on. And I just found it incredibly difficult for people, maybe particularly on this specific topic, but also in general, very difficult for people to accept and respect the failure of other particularly high achieving people. I love your reframing of it, which is that you're actually showing respect for the autonomy of the other person by acknowledging the truth of the failure, as opposed to going into fix-it mode, which is what people tend to do. Yeah, and it's also acknowledging the truth of the human condition, which is such a beautiful testament to your entire podcast series, which is failure isn't failure. Failure is just life. You succeed, you fail, you try things, you give up on them. And when people don't allow someone to have failed, then you're basically communicating that, you know, perfection and, and uninterrupted success is what is uh, like normal. And if you fail, you've done something terribly wrong. But actually, failing isn't failing. Failing is just living. So is being sad. So is being joyful. You know, so is getting your heart broken. And so is winning the game. Like, it's just that is life. I've learned that, you know, through many of these experiences. And again, really helping executives digest that idea. Failing doesn't mean your whole concept of yourself as a hugely successful, high-performing person was wrong. It just means you are human, and that's why we fail. Well, I think that's the perfect note to wrap up this conversation on. But I do want to give you an opportunity, Erica, to you know share any parting thoughts on failure and any anecdotes that we should have covered, but we didn't cover really anything else that, that should be said but hasn't been said. Well, I, for what I want to say... 
the tone of some of what we talked about, and maybe that happens when you talk about failure, feels like a bummer. And I really want to say that failing is an incredible opportunity for you, exactly what you said, Ozan, like you can see a possibility right in front of you when you accept what isn't happening. And that is an enormously positive, liberating, exciting situation. It's not something you should try to avoid. And one of the ways that you can incorporate that, as I mentioned, I think, but, you know, we didn't go into it that much, is just the story you tell yourself about yourself can expand. And, you know, that could be professionally, that could be personally, that could be vocationally, but you're not stuck with the story that you tell yourself today. And that story could be the very thing that you're doing that's getting in your way. You know, there are many ways, and this is probably one of the main things that I do with clients is just think about if you stop worrying about protecting who you are, who could you become? So I I hope that in some ways that can be inspirational because it's greatly inspiring to me. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Erica, for your time. And I say this with all honesty, this is one of the most honest and transparent and fun conversations I've had on the podcast. And, uh, And I'm confident the audience will feel the same way. So having learned about you for the last 40 minutes or so, where can they find you online if they want to follow your work? Awesome. I'd be very, very happy to connect with people who are listening. My website is ericaarielfox.com, which has a little tricky double A because it's Erica Ariel. So there's double A in the middle. But if people go to ericaarielfox.com, if you just scroll down, there's something that says join fellow travelers. And if you put in your information, that's a good way to stay in touch because I will not bombard you with emails and messages, but you will just find out, you know, if I do a blog on Forbes or if I'm interviewed on TV, like you'll get little bits of wisdom, hopefully, and inspiration. Also, like you, I'm working on my next book, which I'm going to be working on in 2019. I am re-embracing my book is my most important client. And hopefully that book will be coming out early in 2020. So if people sign up for that list, you'll also have advance notice when the book is coming out. And I'll probably send some early excerpts just to the people on that list. So that's probably the best way to keep up with what's going on. Either just look at my website or join our list. Well, for those who are listening, all of that will be in the the show notes in case you, you missed any of that. Um, and Erica, this was so much fun. I hope our paths will cross in, in, in real life at some point. And, uh, and thank you so much for joining us. It's such a pleasure. Thanks a lot. Hi, everyone. Thanks for listening. Two things before you take off. First, if you don't want to miss out on future episodes of Famous Failures, please subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you're listening on and be sure to leave a review on iTunes or Google Play. Second, if you'd like to join thousands of others who receive a short email from me each Thursday with a list of articles, books, tools, quotes, and other gems that help you discover how extraordinary thinking produces extraordinary results, you can text my first name, which is Ozan, that's spelled O-Z-A-N, to 345-345. So once again, that's my first name, Ozan, O-Z-A-N, to 345-345. Or if you're in front of your computer, you can head over to ozanvarol.com and drop your email address. If you act now, you'll also get a free ebook called The Contrarian Handbook, Eight Principles to Innovate Your Thinking. As always, thank you for listening and see you next time.